Welcome to Pivot to First. Hi, I'm Mike Seidel. I'm the CTO at Pivot CX. Every day I get to work with some of the brightest minds in the industry with one goal, turning hiring and people strategy into a competitive advantage. Hi, I'm Mike Seidel, CTO here at Pivot CX. And today I'm joined with David Bernstein, our VP of Sales and Marketing. And today's special guest is Victor Assad. He's formerly the Senior Director of HR at Honeywell and Medtronic. He went on to become the CEO at Innovation One, and he's the author of a book called Hack Recruiting. Um, I got to ask, because I love the name of your book, what is Hack Recruiting about? So it's it's a bit, it's all about, hey, let's, let's use the technology that marketing has been using to improve HR and to attract, to improve recruiting. HR is another topic, but to improve recruiting and attract people, let's use really good processes. That's critically important. And let's use what the empirical evidence tells us is impactful for hiring the right people. Uh, not just asking technical questions of technical people, but, but using good interviewing techniques. And we doing all this, and I did this in my work uh, leading different SBUs of Medtronic or, or Honeywell leading HR for these SBUs uh, to shorten the time to hire people to give a better experience to the candidate, to get more information we needed, and to provide a return on, on, on the investment for using these techniques and buying some of the technologies. And what the company gets is that when you hire people faster, they're working on your issues quicker, and you get to bring new revenue uh, to the company, to the bottom line, new earnings, faster than you predicted. And Wall Street has a habit of liking that. So it's a direct, uh, you know, hit to the, a good hit to the bottom line. You know, Victor, one of the things that we see a lot are, are when we talk to especially HR practitioners, they really are disconnected from the bottom line and, and they, they don't understand how important hiring really is. And you brought up one of our favorite topics, at least at least between David and I, which is speed. Mm -hmm. um, how, how do you get, get a team to understand the importance of, of speed? How I've done it is measuring it. So a recruiting process breaks down pretty much the same way for most companies I've worked with. Uh, and we can measure that, just like you can measure culture for a future discussion. We can measure that. We can see where we're having problems, where we're having delays, where we're collecting bad information. And where there's delays, we can fix that. One of the surprises I've found is that often the delays with the hiring manager. And... So uh, when I was leading uh, HR for a couple of units, uh, what I would do is I'd, I'd tell my recruiters, let me know when that happens. I'll call the hiring manager and I'll say, gee, you're, you know, we've, we've been waiting for two weeks for a response. These candidates are going to go someone else, somewhere else and let me do you a favor. I'm going to put your jobs on hold until you're ready to respond to us. And then I'm going to give them to other hiring managers that are going to work real quickly. And I had the support of uh, the top executives to do that because they understood why. And people began to get on board. And, you know, we were polite. We told them, you know, let us know when you're ready. We'll get you back in the game. But we got to move fast. And I was doing this four or five, six years ago, longer even, you know, before the crisis we hear now. But that's just one example. You know, the other... Um, the other thing is, uh, you know, some companies will have 14 people interview. Now, that's gotten better. But if, you know, the research shows if you have more than four people interview, 
The company's not learning anything new about the candidate. So let's not waste people's time. I could go on and on, but I'll stop there, Mike. Sounds like there, there's just a lot of opportunity in most companies to really speed up. And 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 honestly, you know, what we've learned at Pivot has been um, fast, faster is really when it comes to recruiting better. Um, sure. So interesting thing, you, you've moved, uh, you know, from from being a practitioner, being a director of HR to to running your own company. How did you get to Innovation One and tell us what Innovation One's all about? Well, I actually run two companies. One's a strategic HR consulting company. The other's Innovation One. And I met the co-founder of Innovation One, really the founder of Innovation One, Dr. Brooke Dobney, in the San Francisco Bay Area back around 2016. And he had developed through empirical research and in the publishing of over 25 academic peer-reviewed articles, how to measure an organization's culture and its culture of innovation and why that's important. So in measuring the culture of innovation, he had divided it up into a wheel of 12 different uh, drivers of, of innovation. And he uses a, a, a questionnaire for this. And it's remarkably accurate. It's very accurate. And based on what comes out of this, he recommends to the company what they should do to improve their culture. And I told them, gee, I wish I would have had access to this when I was working uh, at uh, some places I've worked with in the past, because it, it just put the finger on it. A lot of organizations believe that, you know, your manufacturing culture, everything comes out the same every time, which is important in manufacturing, or a product development culture is your innovation culture. They aren't. Product development is about taking that innovation and making sure you can manufacture it or provide it as a service, and then it be consistent. Innovation is everything to the opposite. It's about creating something new or adding to something, and you need a very different culture for that. And the unique thing about it is that when you have a culture of innovation, you're not just more innovative with more innovative ideas. You, you have higher market share, you have higher profitability, you have higher productivity because you create openness and transparency and you build trust. And trust is closely related to profitability because you move quicker, you guys like speed and people know more. They have more organizational learning to know what they really need to work on. Wait a minute. That's that's a really interesting thing that you just said. Um, there's a direct relationship between trust and profitability. Yes. How, and how I have does that work? Prove it. <laughs> really? I, okay. This is really interesting because I think so many people don't understand how important trust is, and and in a lot of cases, I don't even think they understand what it is. Well, let's break it down to the team level. So, if you want people on a team to be innovative. They have to be willing to trust each other that if they suggest an idea, it'll be listened to and not laughed at. And they have to know that everyone on the team is going to do their part for the team to be successful. That's trust. You know, if you have a culture where it's do what I tell you and do it now, don't give me no gruff. That's not building trust. That's building compliance. 
And compliance is needed, in, again, in, in manufacturing. If you're getting a pacemaker or a coronary stent from Medtronic, you know, you don't want the one that wasn't made well. You want, you know, this, you know, great quality and reliability coming Works on. Works most you know, of the time, you know? right? Yeah. yeah. But you can still have trust, build trust in the manufacturing line. You know, and I can give you stories about that, where there was an openness created in the manufacturing line, and we can talk later about innovation teams where I started, where an assembler can raise her hand and say, there's green ooze on this, on this semiconductor. I've never seen that before. All the welds are good. I'm told to inspect the welds that the robot made, but there's green ooze. There's something the matter here. She had the authority at Honeywell to stop the line. Actually, this was at Medtronic. And an investigation ensued, and two months later, they found out that a, uh, a supplier changed a compound on a chemical. That would have meant that that pacemaker would have gone bad in six months. That's something you don't want. No. <laughs> you don't want no. that. But that little operator, um, picture your grandma, she had the authorization to raise her hand and say, stop. There's something the matter here. And the company took it seriously. And we were running short on this product out in the field, which you don't want. Sales and marketing is pretty nervous. But stopping that, redoing it, telling the FDA and others, we have a problem here. Here's the fix. That transparency with regulators, as well as the transparency internally, saved lives. That leads to profitability. Uh, just curious, uh, Victor, do, is then there's yeah. a tie-in between that and any of the work that Lencioni does with regards to dysfunctions of a team and trust? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I published a blog, you know, saying uh, what's the number one factor to improve, you know, team mm -hmm. intelligence and team performance. You know, and looked at four different studies. Trust is the number one. You know, and you have, everyone has to understand their role. They have to understand the goal, team norms. All this stuff is good. You need smart people on the team, people who have the expertise you need, all wonderful stuff. But if they can't work together and build trust, you got a problem. And it hurts the bottom line. What is it that, what is it that makes it so hard to build trust in teams? What? Ego. Um, that was a short answer. Yeah. Well, you know, it, what often happens is you may have an expert and they think he or she has all the answers. Or they may be in a profession that looks down on the other professions on the team. I mean, um, you know, the dysfunctions of a team, a brilliant book. I mean, he goes through and talks about all this stuff and you see it. And so you, you have to the leader of the team doesn't necessarily come up with all the solutions, but he needs or she needs to make sure that team is working together or bring in a facilitator to help them with that. Because when you get all these brilliant people working together, you know, yeah. you know, you have something, you know, uh, you know, the, a company may be dominated by um, by mathematicians and, and uh, electrical and mechanical engineers, but for their new products, they may need, you know, Bioscience, they may, which is a profession often dominated by women, not men. But they all that new profession needs to be brought in, welcomed, and be in the culture needs to adjust for that. 
and to, you know, back to trust. I mean, these are some of the real world dynamics that go in with this. But, but when you get that team working, you're going to have more innovation, more profitability, products, new products, services coming out quicker. It's, it's like what I said with recruiting and that word you guys like speed. It, in, it builds up the speed. Yeah. Well, it's hard. It's very, very hard to go fast if you don't trust the people around you because you're always second checking, second guessing. So, Victor, there's all, there's been a ton of conversation as well around diversity and how the, the selling point, right? People have always talked about get a collection of diverse people around and you're going to get a bunch of great ideas and that will drive innovation. Uh, I, I, I think, but I, I won't I want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like it doesn't matter if you've got a bunch of you know creative ideas in the room, but if there's not a lot of trust going, that stuff is still going to fall flat, right? There, there, there's still a missing ingredient. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And, you know, visual diversity is important. And the same things that the same traits of a culture of innovation, transparency, trust. And I can go into some other real, real things that hardcore, you know, kind of hard uh, things um, like process issues and so on that create it. But when you build this culture of innovation where you have this transparency and trust, People who may look different or have an accent or different genders can get along more. But even more than having uh, visual diversity in sync is diversity of thought that may or may not be with visual diversity. So it's, you know, diversity, we don't have as much research on diversity of thought. You know, it can come by, you know, like I said, having a, uh, a biomedical engineer in with a team of you know mechanical and electrical engineers that's different that brings diversity of thought but creating that diversity of thought is huge um company we worked with was trying to come up with new cabinets for millennial mothers and the suggestion we made was do you have any millennial mothers working for you yeah <laughs> Why don't you ask? Them? Wait, wait a minute. So you're making a product for millennial mothers. You don't have any millennial mothers working for you. No, I have a few millennial. They had the millennial mothers working for them. They never asked them. Oh wow! So, so they didn't even uh, bother to ask. Yeah, they they just never thought to. They never asked an employee what they thought of this product. You know, Gap discovered the same thing about ten years ago, and they were, I can't remember who published that article, but. You know, so do you want your mother's cabinet drawers in the kitchen or do you want ones for your age? You know, and and what would be different about it? And, you know, that wasn't quite that direct, but, you know, get a team together. Ask them, what do you think of this product? Their own employees gave them the secret to launch new product designs. So as you as you work with customers that maybe maybe don't have a culture of innovation, how does a, a CEO know? that they need to make a shift? How, how could I tell that I need to really look at my culture and go, we need to change something here. And, and maybe, maybe it is, we need to become more innovative. Well, um, had a lot of those discussions and, uh, often it's the innovation seekers who call us and what the struggle often is with who is above them is that, Things are working good now. I can meet next quarter's numbers, the next quarter after that. And the innovation seekers are saying, well, you got this hockey stick thing here. And, you know, the new products and services are 
and revenue and profits are kind of tailing off. We need to get started now on being innovative. Oh, that innovation stuff, you know, it, it distracts people, puts too much on their plate. And that culture stuff, it's soft, it's squishy. You can't measure it. Well, guess what? You can measure it. Um, you know, Innovation One has an excellent, empirically developed, reliable tool for measuring it. We can pinpoint it. Um, and broader in the research, there's other examples of this. And But it's having an, an executive being able to be open to look down the road, see, understand they need to make changes, and then have a road, a guidepost for doing that that has markers on it that says, what you're doing now is working, keep it up, or says, what you're doing now is only working uh, three quarters of the way is what we thought. We need to, you know, re we need to do some things differently. Here's some ideas we have. Let's talk about it. You know, because you can measure culture, you can measure innovation, you can measure innovation to determine of these six things I've invested in based on the ideas suggested by my employees that fit this strategic goal that I put out, I, the CEO, those teams come back and share their data and you will learn on critical milestones, whether to go with A, B and C or D, E and F or a combination You'll know because maybe they can't hit the technical milestones or marketing has said, if we don't release it in six months, not 12 months, we're third to the market. Don't bother. Or it's spent, it's costing too much money. You know, I can go on and on. These are not hard to do. And if you use OKR goaling, you know, we have the big goal out there and these key milestones you're tracking, you can determine that. I mean, I've been in, in meetings, innovation meetings where, Team D, E, and F has said, we're not going to make it. Take our funding. Take our data. Give it to A, B, and C. They have a better chance, and here's why. That's the culture you want. You know, the people on D, E, and F aren't going to be fired for failure. They're going to, you know, they're, they're, part of, they're part of the, you know, fail fast, furiously, and frequently to figure out what's going to work and not work. This is part of where a culture of innovation is different than a culture of manufacturing or a culture that's top down, a culture of compliance. Now, again, compliance is good later, right? You don't want that bad pacemaker, but right. um, you know, that that's the essence of it. You can measure it and you get more profit. Oh, a long time ago, uh, when I had a whole lot more hair, um, I, you know, I went to work for a company that was trying to be innovative and all of the engineers there, I was one of them, really struggled with doing anything new because uh, we, we called it hippos. We had these highly paid people's opinions that would come in and just whatever idea came out, didn't matter. We were just gonna do what the hippo said. And so we ended up in a situation where we couldn't innovate. And, and what you were saying about, you know, you, you're, you're letting today's tailing off revenue block you from getting to the hockey stick you need tomorrow. Um, that, that was a way of life at this company. And how, how, how often do you see that hippo pattern? Remember my first answer to you, ego? Uh, oh yeah. Ego. The hippo guy might, the hippo might be the ego. Yeah. Well, the, you know, I, that to me, that circumstance happens more sort of at a team level or strategy session. Um, but, you know, back to sort of the CEO and, 
I wouldn't necessarily put that in the hippo. It's kind of like, oh, no, I want to, I want to take the risk and rock the boat. Now, a new CEO, a new chief technology officer, a new, you know, chief uh, in, uh, engineering officer. At that stage of taking over the job, they're they're okay with uh, uncovering what's not working, and that's what our assessment would do. Um, from a cultural perspective, we're not the technical experts, right? Um, so people new on the job or people rather desperate, uh, you know, we, we, you know, we tend to have more success, but, you know, just talking to a potential client recently and, and can't get past, you know, this top echelon, a couple of them, I think three of them to go ahead and do work with them. They just eh, don't want to rock the boat quite yet. So the bigger the company, the greater the challenge, I would imagine, right? The more layers, the more middle management. I, I know when I was an HR practitioner, we used to say uh, middle management is where culture goes to die, right? That's a, it... the, black hole of, yeah, the black hole of change management or culture or digital transformation. Yeah. I mean, is there really, is there a CEO playbook on, on this, on how you do this and larger companies and make it pervasive or maybe that should be the next book, but, um, <laughs> app culture, huh? Yes. Instead of no, there's, there's a CEO playbook for how to do this. Yeah. You know, I mean, we have this thing, you know, we talk about six, sometimes we use seven traits of highly innovative companies. And the first one is the CEO has a, a vision and strategy for innovation. That's contextual to where they are what they need financially, what the market looks like, and where's their niche. What's that vision? What are the strategies? And they talk about that incessantly, more than the financial plan. And they invite people, their employees, you know, their, um, their supply chain, their external partners to give them ideas. And they have a process to collect the ideas, a very reliable process to collect the ideas. And they also share information, you know, not, not anything that the SEC, you know, is going to take them to court for, but they, you know, they share what they're learning from customers. They share what they're learning about new technology. So people have the information in their head and can speak up, whether it's the woman, you know, on the, uh, on the manufacturing line or somebody in engineering or somebody in supply chain. You know, we define innovation as anything new that creates value. So if another company is doing something outside of your industry that would create value for you, that's your innovation. You know, if it, you know, if it fits within that strategy and is going to fit your markers. Okay. And these organizations, you know, they do more than that. They, they change their hiring, looking for the new talent they need. They change their performance management system looking for that their performance management system rewards collaboration, rewards transparency, so that people are working together, not trying to one-up each other to impress the boss. You know, like I mentioned OKRs, you know, of uh, different uh, high-tech companies, if you hit all of your OKRs, well, they just weren't tough enough. In a compliance culture, you want to hit everything. Because you're fired if you don't after two months. But in an innovation culture, you don't want to hit them. I mean, 
You want to set up a challenging culture that you have to figure things out. And everyone understands when you come back with a milestone where it doesn't work, it just doesn't work right now. Maybe we need to wait six months for something. Yeah. But you, as I said earlier, you don't get fired for it. So the risk taking, right? Um, a little bit of risk. Yeah, it's and, risk taking. Yeah. yeah. The trust that yeah. it's okay to fail, right? Yeah. Yeah. Trust. Yeah. You know, with, without uh, being, uh, you know, irrational about it. But yeah. Yeah. Again, you when you're manufacturing, okay, you can't have any errors here. You know, a pacemaker. So, so wait a minute. What you're saying is it's it's you really do want to make it so failure, you know, if it happens, it's not necessarily the end of the world, but there are some reasonable limits to, to where a fair failure in innovation okay. and certainly on innovation teams, you want to create again, this transparent trusting culture and fail fast, furiously and frequently. And then the question becomes, what did we learn today? What's tomorrow's experiment? Okay. Now, in manufacturing, obviously, you want compliance. You want to do things per the regulations, but you always want to be asking those operators how to go today. Do we have something to work on? You know, why, why is it, you know, things don't work well for us on Thursday afternoon? What's going on? You know, whatever it is. You know, so again, you want that trust, that openness. Yeah. Though manufacturing is a little different than the innovation team, but you want to yeah. have a whole culture of innovation, not just sure. your R&D people. And it's not rogue, right? It's not rogue. It's not rogue cowboys going off uh, half cocked with crazy ideas. It's a concerted, eyes wide open. Let, let's take a risk. We all, all, all of us on this team, yeah. kind of let's decide, yeah. right? Type of thing. Right? Yeah, I mean, you know, rogue cowboys could work in a startup. They often, you know, do. But we're talking about working in, <laughs> working in with an organization that has continuing operations, or you know, their past startup. They're making things. Uh, they probably have driven out a lot of their innovation, you know, uh, with uh, compliance for Wall Street or, or, you know, the third round of funding or to make things. But, you know, OK, we got to get that back. Be innovative again. I know just from the standpoint of having started a few startups and, and, and the heart, one of the hardest decisions you have to make is when do you slow down on innovation and when do you really switch over to, to more of a compliance, uh, more of a quality driven kind of met metric it's it's a hard decision and, and a hard thing to understand. Well, how, how do you approach that? Yes, you have to do what your industry requires for compliance. Whether, you know, whether you're in pharmaceuticals, medical devices, aerospace, you know, on and on. But but you don't want to drum up all that innovation. You you still can can innovate for the future. I mean, how long do products and services last? Now, if your strategy of remember, I said everything's contextual. So, if your strategy as a CEO is of a startup is to sell it in three years and run, you know, maybe innovation, future innovation is not needed after the first or second one. You know, it's contextual. But but if you're in it for the long haul, or you know, to hit your goal of selling it, you have to come up with more innovation. Keep keep these innovation processes going. And, and certainly keep them going on the manufacturing line because of, or the services, however, you know, for a service uh, organization so that the people doing the business can tell you what's not working. And the closer they, these employees are to the customers, the more they'll know. Be open to that. They'll tell you. They know exactly what's not going well. So, I mean, and as I said, you can, you can measure culture. You can you can measure innovation 
Um, but, you know, in some organizations, they call this business development. You know, part of it is always looking externally, seeing what's coming on up there outside of your own backyard that can help you be innovative or where your industry is going or who you can, you know, whose table you can turn over with your innovation. Um, you know, that's a big part of it. We've worked with companies where we say, well, you know, I think what you need to do first is you need to get back in touch with your customers. You know, we can do a marketing survey for you, but, you know, we, you, you've lost the voice of the customer in your organization, you know, and give them all an airplane ticket to go visit key customers and see what's going on as well as a survey. And, but then they come back with, you know, then... So, Victor, you've said you said this a few mm -hmm. times, so I've got to I've got to ask you about this. You know, you yeah. keep saying, you know, we can measure innovation. It's an employee survey. How do you do that? It's and uh, it's empirically developed, meaning, you know, we academically developed where we started with over. This is Dr. Brooke Dobney, not me. But, you know, 180 constructs of innovation he identified by interviewing CEOs. And then through a series of surveys, he, he nailed a construct is kind of a question. And he nailed it down to 72. And that's a very highly accurate survey. Because everyone's over surveying, most organizations can't, and their employees can't tolerate a 72 question survey. So we've gone back and looked further at which questions are, are the most predictive. And then it brought that down, but with enough question per the 12 drivers that we can tell you what's going on. How much? Uh, of, and it has. How much of the organization has to participate in that survey? To what is statistically significant? Okay, that's okay. That's a lot now, smaller we, number. If they want, yeah, it's a lot smaller number. Um, you know, there's no uh, weaning out the whiners, the employees perceived as whiners. We want everyone's input. We want it broadly across the organization. Some companies uh, don't always want to do that, but we encourage it. And but we are looking for statistically significant results. We don't want quantified gossip. We want statistically significant results, the executives all the way down to the lowest people in the organization, uh, you know, broadly across. And we look for statistical significance in different subcategories. And that'll give you incredible accuracy, particularly with the questions that, that we've developed. Again, Brooke Dabney developed. And... Um, and then we come up with a score for each of the 12 drivers of innovation, an overall score. And then we compare it to either country of interest or your industry, you know, and whether it's a publicly funded R&D lab or manufacturing, high tech, finance, uh, United States, Canada, um, uh, you know, Germany, you know, we have the data. And so we can make this comparison and that's insightful because you can see against your group of peers or, you know, the best of the best, how you're doing. And we tell you, don't boil the ocean. Let's start with some basics based on what your data and what you most badly need. And we'll lay it out in a, in a plan about where we're going to start. We're going to start with looking at building trust. So I'd, I'd be interested to Victor, because I, I, from, again, I, I've run lots of employee surveys. I, I, one of the challenges I've always run into is do people feel safe? Do they trust that they can on, speak honestly, even in a, an anonymous survey? 
because they their perception is that there's nothing really anonymous. Everybody really knows who's saying what. It's all tracked somewhere. So if people aren't being honest and you get a halo effect and people say, anyway, how do you get to the root and really get to truth? Does uh, my question, you tracking my question? Yeah. yeah. Can you handle the truth? <laughs> Can't handle the truth. Right? I'm joking from a movie, yes, right? Yeah. So, um, so we do it with numbers and I do a content analysis. I go through everything everyone has said as opposed to keyword search or what word is the most popular. Yeah. Is that good? Is that bad? And look at what the context that people are writing about and what are these common themes emerging? I, I, and so we marry those two, the numbers, and then we add, of all the comments, we add quotes, anonymous quotes. And we don't know, we don't get you know email identifiers that come back. It's all dumped into the software. Uh, we don't want to know. But the numbers speak with the employees' comments. I've had people call me back saying they were in tears reading by, about some of the, uh, the, the work environments that were created in her organization. Oh, is this like but undercover boss? Is, is that the right? Yeah. <laughs> what, were you like, you didn't know what really is happening at the, at the lower levels kind of thing or. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they didn't know. Um, some of them had an idea, but you know, it's not shame anybody. It's all right. Here's where you're at. If you want to improve your market share, your productivity, your financial numbers, we can work on this. And based on your data, comparing it to here's the, uh, you know, your comparison group, here's what we recommend you do. Yeah, so, it, you know, often it begins with the, the leaders that they have not said in a convincing way. Everyone says innovation is important. Everyone says diversity is important. But they haven't been convincing about innovation or we want your feedback. So at first, it's what their messaging is and how often they do it. And if they're if if the CEO says, oh, I'm not good at that, who would be in your organization? You two do it together and consistently and then put in place the other things that are missing across the 12 drivers. You know, they may already have, um, you know, part of it is investments. They may already make great investments in labs and, and artificial and, you know, digitization of the organization and so on. But they haven't invested in organizational learning. Pete Sange had, had written about that, right? We've discovered that's important. And what that is isn't just your skill training as an individual or a job category. It's what is shared about what's going on outside of our little company. What's the, what's the technology? What's the good feeling the, the customer wants? What is, uh, what is a new exposing social demographic that will change how people buy clothing or how people buy real estate? What's coming in there that, you know, depending on what your industry is, that we have to look at? That's organizational learning. And it's not kept tight. And again, it's, it's not whether we're going to make next next quarter's numbers or not, right? They're not who we're going to, what acquisition we're going to, none of that stuff, you know, that's IP. It's this other stuff. 
you know, it's your suppliers listening to them to say, you know, you, you have this, there's an upgrade to it. Would this be helpful? You know, you're listening to all this. And you've created a process of knowledge management where teams can find data on innovation quickly. It's digital. It can be the, you know, can be who to call either way. It, you know, and you work through it. You have a process for making suggestions. There's, um, you know, there's project management software that's very helpful for this. It's very expensive. Uh, or you do it the old-fashioned way. And that works. Um, and you work through it. Uh, and, you know, I, I come from a medical device background, so we have different stages of innovation. You know, from ground zero, which is figure it out, to, you know, when you're first, you know, first in man, you know, actually um, there's animal studies first, but then first in man and so on and so forth, working to manufacture it. And so, you know, you, depending on your industry, you can take well-known stages of innovation or we'll give you some. And so you can measure this. So is this helping, David? Is this answering your question? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's, it, down, uh, triggered another question I'll say in my head as I was kind of like, so do innovative companies, if we tie this back to uh, where we started our conversation as well with regards to hack recruiting and, and your and your book there, but is there any, what are you seeing maybe that, if any, connection between companies that have embraced innovation and are trying to uh, put that into their culture and are they, are there HR practices that flow from that or are there, are, are they... Yes. Is it doing anything yeah. in their improving their rec their recruiting and attractiveness or, yeah? What's well, a good brand helps. Yeah, good a good company brand helps with recruiting. Right. You know, so a lot of empirical evidence for that. Um. You know, as far as with HR, it, it's it's working. Some HR people don't want to. You know, they say culture's not my thing. Just you know, I'm not the culture person. I think HR should be the culture person. And we have many great HR leaders who are the culture person. So the first thing is advocating this type of culture in a context of the business, right? The other is, um, as you do your talent management plan, including, you know, who you're, what type of skills you need going forward, ask especially what do we need for these innovation projects to succeed? You know, when we began to bring in biomedical people at Medtronic, coronary and peripheral, those cats wanted a different work culture. And what so we had to revise our work culture to what made them feel comfortable without destroying the culture that our mechanical engineers and electrical engineers had. Um, we, you know, and then you have to look at the performance management system if you're, you know, with HR. Is it, you know, if your performance management system was used like the old GE, you know, if it's about compliance and hitting all goals, you know, every quarter, that's not going to help innovation. You, you have to reward um, uh, collaboration, teamwork, um, you know, teamwork, as I talked about earlier, you know, uh, 3M, they've had some rough years, but 3M uh, McKnight, one of their CEOs almost 100 years ago, had a rule. If it takes you more than three phone calls to get an answer to your question, call me. I'll get it for you. 
he was promoting, you know, this is going back to like the 1930s or something. He was promoting collaboration and helping the innovation teams. Okay. I mean, so again, performance management may be something HR needs to look at and change. You know, I keep hearing, uh, I keep hearing a, a two words that, that keep coming up over and over. So we, we talk about performance management, but I also keep hearing you say the word listen a lot. And it always has struck me when I, I, I find myself in cultures that I don't think are very innovative. I always see coworkers and I always see people talking about how no one listens to me. Mm -hmm. Is that something that, that, that it might be a little symptom that, that there's, there's some culture work that needs to be done? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we have a, one of the 12 drivers we call connectivity. Okay. And a big part of that, you know, is how well employees believe in the purpose, vision, and strategies of the organization and their team. And if they believe their leader knows their skills and abilities okay, and listens to them. That's a, that's a really interesting way, way of looking to, does the leader know, you know, what the people in the team can even do that that's fascinating because every time I found myself on a team that, you know, say it felt a lot less than innovative. Um, that was part of it is that the, the people didn't even know what the t people in the team were good at. And a lot of times we yeah. would constantly be talking about, we need to get somebody who's better at X. Meanwhile, there's a person sitting at the table that actually is really good at that. <laughs> and yeah, uh, you know, it, they're, they're getting their bubble. They're, they're getting their balloon popped, even though they didn't even ask for that. You know, their boss is just basically saying, Oh, you're not val valuable to me. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, people, feel, you know, people on the team, the individual feels that. And by the way, you know, people of, of color, women who um, that's what they want. They, they want to know that they are heard, accepted. Uh, the leader uh, will listen to what they have to say, um, that they're getting the same training everyone else is. Uh, their accomplishments are being acknowledged. It's again, it gets back to transparency and trust. I say this is the best diversity program you could have that, you know, that's what people want. They want, you know, particularly if they feel to be an outsider. Well, it sounds an awful like what you're, it sounds an awful like what, you know, what you're saying is, you know, if, if we're being innovative and, and we're, we're value, we're building a place where, where everyone trusts the team, trust each other. Yeah. We're li yeah. listening to each other is natural because it just flows from trust. It, it, it does. And, you know, and I want to stress for the CEOs listening that these teams are also hard charging teams. They're focused, trying, using OKRs. And they are, you know, they're trying to hit these goals. But they know that that collaborating, they're going to get there quicker. You know, not everyone likes sports analogies, but, you know, on a football team, if, you know, if the front seven have this strategy in their mind and the back four on defense have a different one, it ain't going to work too good, even if you have the best athletes. So, um, you know, this this coming together is what works. And again, 
you can fail and it's it's all right you you failed in a in a, a way that caused us to learn that this strategy for innovation maybe is not the right one right now it's that one so we really do find you know innovation and learning are tied together at yeah. the hip yeah yeah so yeah okay so what yeah you could call this a learning culture we you know we put innovation on it but yeah yeah, that's that's part. It's of it. funny the the learning culture. Um, you know, the company here at Pivot CX a few years back, we we shifted our culture to we we call it a culture of learning. And the big change was really making sure everybody knew it was okay to make mistakes and it was okay to, yeah. you know, it was okay to to have ideas that didn't work out. You know, we didn't want to repeat the same failures yeah. over and over. But you know, nobody's yeah. going to learn if they're afraid of anything new. And so we we, we kind of took that and. Uh, um, we actually made a really big pivot. We were, uh, we had a totally different software product and, uh, we realized when COVID hit that we needed to change everything. And a lot of that came about because the people in the company weren't afraid to say, this isn't working and it's not going to work. We need to do right. And we did. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, good for you, Mike, my compliments. Um, you know, that, you know, the last three years have been tough and we're not done with the tough. <laughs> so good for you. Days, you I think we're just started you. on the tough. <laughs> but uh, honestly, it's been a this this last few years has been really good. And and for our for our company and, and a lot of it comes from the fact yeah. that we weren't afraid. We, we weren't afraid to change yeah. and we weren't afraid to listen to the people in our team. And more importantly, you know, you kept saying, listen to customers early on, you know, being disconnected from your customers. I can't, I just can't stress enough how important it is to be connected to, to the people that are using your product and, and buying your product. And those aren't always the same thing. Sure. Yeah, you're right. So, you know, as we, we kind of get to the end of this, I always have a few questions for our guests and I'll, I'll start with the easiest one of all, which is, is there anything that we should have asked you that we didn't? Oh, um, uh... We could have a whole nother, you know, 30, 40 minutes on current trends in HR and why people shouldn't pay any attention to quiet quitting, quiet, uh, well, they should uh, quiet hiring uh, and, and quiet firing is just stupid. And, uh, you know, and a few other trends that are out there. So that that's what I would say. <laughs> well, I, I agree with you on, on the quiet, especially, uh, especially on the quiet firing. Uh, but th this... Yeah, you're right. There's so many things we could talk about. So other next question for you, and this is one we ask all of our guests, and, and uh, hopefully this just rolls right off the tip of your tongue, but if it doesn't, that's okay. What business book have you read that totally changed everything for you? Um, there's several. First one that comes to mind is Situational Leadership, written a long time ago. And that uh, there's a model presented in there which says, you know, say you lead a team of seven, you don't treat them all the same way. You, you, you lead them differently based on what their competency level is to do their job and what they like to do and, and what they don't like to do. And, um, and if somebody is, you know, loves what they're doing and is fully competent, get out of their way. You know, propel them to do great things you haven't thought of. Get out of their way. And if somebody's new to the team, you know, that's where you need to be coaching and developing them. And and there's a lot of other lessons out that. But um, that model has great evidence behind it. 
it's more than 20 years now of how it works. I, I would tell every uh, organization out there to do that training or something very much like it. So situational leadership. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, that was a long time ago. Now you said you said you had another one. Oh, I have several. Um, uh, what's it called? Organizational performance. Corporate culture and performance by John Cotter. Now this is again, uh, gosh, this is some twenty some years. Now this is also into culture. But uh, he, I thought, he and, and James Heskett put together a great book about the importance of, of, of having an open culture, not a staid culture. And sometimes, you know, back to your question about HR, sometimes HR people want to know, this is our culture, we want to protect it. Cultures that adapt and learn do better performance. You know, in addition to our research that came later, uh, Cotter's research was, uh, you know, really insightful when I, when I first, first read it. Um, I thought it was terrific. Okay. Now here's the really, really easy question that we, yeah. what's your favorite movie? Casablanca. Oh, wow. That's a classic. It is a classic. There's a several others, but Casablanca, you know, people who are terribly flawed, rise to the occasion to do the right thing when it really matters. Victor, for Dave. Besides that. Oh, huh? go, go ahead. I was going to say, besides that, uh, you know, Bogey will always have Paris. So that's a line from the movie. But anyhow. So th- first, first off, Victor, thank you so much for joining us, uh, for, for David and uh, the team here at Pivot to CX. Thanks so much. Have a great afternoon. Yes, thank you. Enjoyed it.